Welcome to Behavioral Health in the New Normal, a podcast developed by Prestige Community Resources, aimed at bringing healing back to our community through knowledge, expert advice, and positive messaging. The show is a joint venture between the Department of Behavioral Health and Prestige Community Resources, funded by SAMHSA in response to the challenges currently impacting our communities. Hosted by Paul Wells Sr., who uses over 30 years of extensive clinical social work experience to conduct insightful interviews with experts and professionals on a wide range of topics that impact the Washington, D.C. community. From behavioral health crisis to education to financial hardship and anything in between, this show will provide information and insights that will surely make a difference in your life. I would like to welcome everyone back to the Prestige podcast series, Behavioral Health in the New Norm. I am so excited today because I'm going to get a chance to have a discussion with my dear friend and colleague, Mr. Will Barnett. Barnett and I go back um, many, many years. In fact, before I, as I was preparing for this segment, I counted about 26 years uh, ago, I first met Mr. Barnett. Uh, and at that time we were both uh, running very large outpatient substance use disorder programs, the two largest in the city. We had multiple locations. I think Mr. Barnett actually was running one out of, out of Maryland as well. And I was so impressed with his knowledge and commitment to recovery. We were both actually working with uh, mandated clients at the time. And, and uh, I think it was a contract with Federal U.S. Probation uh, Office, uh, D.C., that we were really focused on and in partnership on. So today we're going to get a chance to uh, talk with Mr. Barnett, and I'm going to really um, introduce you to him. Uh, the focus today is really going to be a Narcan. Um, and for those who don't know what Narcan is, Mr. Barnett is going to describe that. We're going to learn today how it works, how it's administered, and how it helps those who are in recovery or those in the recovery community. Mr. Barnett's been doing this work for 25 plus years. He has 25 years of operational leadership experiences. He possesses a master's or MBA with an emphasis in healthcare systems improvement and a master's degree in project management. Mr. Barnett currently leads the Prestige nonprofit organization, Prestige Community Resources or PCR. PCR is dedicated to improving the lives and healthcare outcomes of the homeless and residents of underserved communities in Washington, DC. Mr. Barnett, how are you, sir? And I'm blessed and highly favored. Paul, Indeed. I'm not going to claim nothing else. That's, that's right. We're all blessed. We just, we, we, some of us know it and some of us don't. That's and, right, uh, right. Yeah. And, and I'm all very aware you know it, and I, I definitely know <laughs> it. So, Ms. Barnett, uh, let's start with just kind of your background. Where, where were you born? Where were you raised? What, what were your early life experiences? Could you share that with us, please? Absolutely. I'm a native Washingtonian. I love D.C. And, um, you know, D.C. people, you know them wherever you go. That's right. Um, they just have a certain swag about them. I was born in the district. My dad was a sharecropper from uh, South Carolina mm. who served 25 years in the military, World War II and Korean War. My mom is from Indonesia. Okay. And she, uh, as an immigrant, came and, um, you know, met my dad. I've got three, uh, I've got two brothers. So there was three of us. I was the youngest. 
Yes. Um, and just growing up in DC, being exposed to everything that's DC. That's right. Um, I love it. I and love what's it. some of that? I think of uh, what? Uh, Go-Go Music, uh, Mumble <laughs> Sauce. Uh, the Tivoli Theater, the Savoy Theater, the Atlas right. Theater. Come on, like keep the going. Lincoln, like Petworth, Petworth Band. I can, you know, DC is such a vibrant community. Um, when I grew up, the Blackbirds were recording um, a block with, you know, the Blackbirds, they're a band from our neighborhood. And, That's right. you know, the district communities changed. I remember every neighborhood used to have a band and That's now right. every neighborhood has a rapper. So it kind of changes how um, in the mindset of um, the young people in our community and That's how right. they grow and what their value systems are. What part of D.C. did you grow up? What section of D.C.? <laughs> I grew up in Petworth, Shepherd Street, 13th okay. and Shepherd. 13th so, and Shepherd, okay. Uh, yeah, I'm the Uptown crew. Uptown, that's, okay. That's what's up. I should have known that just by the way you walk. You know, the Uptown brothers <laughs> have a... Have, now, you, you mentioned D.C. swag, and that is so true, but the Uptown brothers, I mean, they, they have their own little vibe about them. Don't hmm? get it twisted. I got a, a, a passport, so basically I can go on almost any segment of the city and be all right with people because I've helped a lot of people. This is true, and, right? Mm -hmm. We all face the same struggle. It doesn't matter whether you're uptown, downtown, east side, west side. The struggle is different, but the struggle is a struggle. Absolutely. And, you know, we have to, we have to embody um, unity. That's right. And compassion Absolutely. and how we deal with each other. You know, you are respected in, in the metropolitan D.C. area, and you have the privilege of going in any ward, any side of the city, based on just who you are as a person, but also the, the remarkable commitment and contributions you made to those who, who are in the struggle, who are just struggling to survive and, and maintain good mental health, maintain solid recovery. Uh, and so you, you, are, there's, you have full access to the community. So you grew up in DC, you went to DC public schools uh, and you, you had a full rounded DC experience. How did you, uh, decide and why did you decide to go into mental health and substance abuse service? You know, when I look back on my upbringing, um, one, you know, my name is Wilhelm, so I felt like I didn't fit in. Mm. And not fitting in was a big issue for me. Yeah. And what I discovered is when I um, smoked weed, when I had drugs, mm -hmm. then I could fit in. Okay. Everybody wanted to be my friend. Mm. And don't get it twisted, I wasn't a dumb guy. You know, I went, I went to a public school, um, you know, and around the ninth grade, one of my English teachers reached out to me and she said, you're wasting your time. I said, what are you talking about? She said, you're in school, but you're not being challenged. You're getting straight A's, A's and B's and what you do, but this is like a playground for you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, she arranged for an interview at Gonzaga, which is a um, prep school in the district. Right. And I ended up in Gonzaga on scholarship. Mm. There was a priest there. His name was Father Horace B. McKenna. Mm. And I worked in the rectory and Father McKenna um, single-handedly um, planted seeds of hope in a lot of different communities. He's one of the people that helped to found so others might eat. Um, mm. um, Martha's Table, McKenna's yeah. Wagon, all of that was 
all about the philanthropic work that he did in right. helping people who couldn't help themselves. So I think the seed was planted there then. Okay. And as a high school student, I was writing meal tickets and um, mission tickets so people could sleep in the gospel mission. I was interacting with people. And I realized that poverty, drug abuse, um, hard times don't have no conscience. No. Anybody can get it, you know, and these are human beings. And But for the grace of God, that could be me. Right. Um, I, so, 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 well, you always had the, uh, you always had a, a certain sensitivity and awareness uh, about you. And we know that's a gift. And I appreciate the fact that you were introduced and mentored and supported by someone who I call a messenger of hope. That's how you describe him. And he gave you some information and validated who you are, that you also are a messenger of, of hope and recovery. But specifically, though, we're, today we're talking about opiate crisis and uh, substance use disorders and, and just, just the overarching need for, for services to be available to, to those who suffer from addiction. You've been working in this arena now for 25 plus years consistently, no breaks. I know you, and I'm talking about extended days, and you sometimes work with multiple agencies. Why such a commitment? substance user. Where did that no. come from? Um, my dad was alcoholic mm. and he died when I was 12 okay. and that cut me to the core. And okay. I didn't know it during that time period, but um, it impacted me in such a way that I was going through life feeling like I ain't need nobody. I wasn't going to let nobody get close to me. Right. And in a lot of ways, a lot of um, my guidance came from the streets. Right. So, um, you know, I'm not a dumb guy. I left Gonzaga. I ended up at Howard University. Mm. And um, I eventually got a job working in the music industry. I was working at CBS Records. I was uh, promoting for people like Teddy Pendergrass, the OJs, the Isaac Brothers. Yeah. I was 22 yeah. years old. Uh. And I wasn't, I didn't have the foundation, mm -hmm. right, for that life. Right. So things started coming at me. You know, and what did, that, super, what did that life look like? What was that? What were you exposed to at such a young age? You know, you're 22 years old. You're riding around with limousines. You're riding around with entertainers. Um, right. Back then, I was selling drugs 100 miles an hour. Right, right. Um, and that's nothing to be proud of. But during that time period, it was a means to an end. Okay. Right. I got money. My boss, my supervisor, turned me on to heroin. Mm. So I started up to that point things were kind of fun, right? The first time I used heroin, I'll never forget it. It was like a light went off. And yeah. I knew that I would keep that feeling. I wanted that feeling um, integrated in my life. Like right. it was better than anything I've ever done before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, my problem isn't, you know, um, the drug. My problem is the price that you pay to use the drug. That's right. You know, the drug is just an inanimate object, but we will sacrifice everything, everything. And, you know, I went through that path. Okay. So once I started using and lost control, you know, um, lost the house, lost the car, lost the job, lost the money. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, lost my self-respect. That's right. When I started losing my dignity and... 
I started looking at the relationships I was having. Um, I don't wish, you know, to live without hope, to be in, you know, emotional pain, much less physical pain. So at some point you, know? you became hopeless, I imagine, because all of the Absolutely. things that you had worked for were removed from you as a result of your youth. And that would and, lead anyone into a to a period and a bout of despair and hopelessness and and um oh I was completely depressed and hopeless and um because of my drug use and drug activity I ended up um, in D.C. Superior Court I was right. facing 15 years and the judge told me to get clean or I was going to do every bit of that time yeah and um, he sent me to a program called Second Genesis yeah. um the director of that program, um, I will never forget. Um, Ed Flowers was one of the people that was responsible for opening up the first residential program in the district. Um, both him and Ron, there was always argument. Ron Clark was the founder of RAP Incorporated right. and Ed opened up the um, DC facility for Second Genesis I knew them basically both around well. the same year, around yeah. 1972. And um, Ed left an imprint on my life, you know, that I will never forget. Being in a therapeutic community, um, which was a, you know, that was a fancy name for the treatment program, but that treatment program um, was very well run. Although on the outside, you know, a therapeutic community back then, this was old treatment. Like if you do something wrong, they put a sign around your neck. But I remember. Um, I, ne I needed that kind of help. I needed to be directed. I needed, and you know, for the first time in my life, I felt connected. I felt that my contributions to the community had meaning. When I, you know, they have job functions in those kind of programs and I was like the coordinator, the highest a resident could go. And I realized at some point that they were training me to be a staff member. Okay. And I ended up in treatment. I was stayed in treatment 27 months. Right. Um, which you don't was, see which, that anymore. Right, which was almost, it was very common back then before managed care put some requirements on length of stay. The average residential stay was two years. Absolutely. Yeah. And I believe in long-term treatment. Me too. You've got, you've got these get jokers out here who using, you know, they have 10, 20, 30 year histories of using opioids. They're not going to unlearn that in two days of detox and a 28 day program. You know, that's part of it. The other part of it is from a social learning format, um, what I've found is that, you know, African-American people, we as a people yes. don't do well with cognitive approaches. We do better with social learning. So it's not, you know, it isn't just do as I say, it's do as I do. So if right. you work in this field, you have to be very, um, you have to be about your work. You got to be about the model. You have to walk to walk, not just talk to talk. It's obvious that you believe treatment works. Not oh, only absolutely. were you the beneficiary of treatment, you've been the administrator and practice practitioner yes. of treatment. So you've been on both sides and you've seen the value both personally and professionally that treatment offers. You know, when I first started this work, uh, I never forget the medical director at that time. And this was what? 30 years ago, uh, there was this old psychiatry formula that one used to use. And, and this psychiatrist said for every day sick, it takes two days to recover. Now that might seem pretty exaggerated and it's not literally 
two days equals one day of, of you know, restoration. Uh, but what it speaks to is what you mentioned earlier, and that is we can't abbreviate treatment. Recovery is a, a process. It's a lifelong experience. And the first phase can't be shortened just because of this, this managed care requirement, because we know that first phase of treatment, inpatient detox is so critical and lays that foundation for ongoing recovery. So it's obvious you know treatment. Um, you've managed many, many programs uh, as clinical director, CEO, COO, and you know a lot about opiate treatment. Tell us what's going on today. What, what, what do we need to know about the opiate crisis in Washington, D.C. specifically in 2021? You know, growing up in Washington, D.C., I'm going to have to say, like, my first um, exposure to opioids, I remember being, I think it was the sixth or seventh grade, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and back then, um, they had different programs in the communities, um, manpower, pride, and there were, um, I remember being in seventh grade, a couple of dope fiends came to present. And I say dope fiends because these were people who was um, straight off the street. Right. They had gotten clean and um, they were recovering. But back then, you know, that's just how we saw people. And um, the stigma associated with substance use, especially opioid use, that's right. um, is something we have to continue to work to change. Okay. But they were talking about why we shouldn't use drugs. And at that point, I didn't know what a drug was. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that as I went along and, you know, drugs became a way of coping for me, like mm -hmm. smoking weed, you know, 15, 16 years old, um, lying about it, um, ducking, dodging. And uh, I graduated to other things. I started, you know, selling coke and eventually discovered heroin. Right. And opioids in this community have been here a long time. This is not a new crisis for this community. Okay. This community, you know, when, when people talk about the opioid crisis, I think about in the 80s and 90s, Oof. you know, when we had open air drug markets. Absolutely. When we, uh I can remember, I remember what 14th and W, seventh uh, oh and T. I lived at 14th and W. You hear yeah, me? it was it, it was a community within itself, wasn't it? Oh my God! Mm -mm -mm. I can probably name ten people who are making thirty thousand dollars a day. Yes, right. You know, if you were doing um, hand to hand, you know, um, you at least seven hundred um, daily in a matter of hours, and that's just making five dollars on each packet, each drug packet that you sold. And when I think about Fourteenth um, and, and and W and Seventh and T Street, these are these were open air markets. I mean, it was just you could see it. You could see transactions. You saw people coming and going all night long. Are you telling every me that every day, that, all day, that, that experience still well, occurs today? Is there open market here in DC now? Yes, there mm -hmm. are open markets they're a little more hidden than they used to be. Mm -hmm. But don't get it twisted. There are areas where opioid use is frequent. Okay. And, you know, the thing about it, uh, 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 an opioid addict, you know, um, generally 
any hardcore addict, you know, we think differently. Mm -hmm. We process differently. Mm -hmm. We react differently. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, a heroin user can cop heroin in any country, even if he don't speak the language. Just give him a few minutes. He's going to figure out where's that and how to get it. That's right. And that's level of skill to survive. And this you is know, what I realized that if you can survive in the murder capital of the world, mm -hmm. you can survive anywhere. That's right. And that experience of being addicted, and I didn't know how to stop using it. And I tried. Been on, went on a methadone program, mm -hmm. shot dope to get off the methadone, right. went and used methadone again to get off the dope, and then eventually ended up in the program. And I didn't know that I could be clean. I didn't think it was possible. And, you know, when I started going to rooms of Narcotics Anonymous, I saw people who I thought were worse than me. And if they could get it, I knew I could get it. Absolutely. And absolutely. So for me, and then one day I raised my hand in a meeting and I shared honestly and openly, and people welcomed me with open arms and they said, we love you. Keep coming back. It works if Thanks you work. Thanks for sharing. That's and right. I, once again, I felt connected. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's important for me to carry a message of recovery and to do all I can do because I know what it's like to live without hope. You know, well, I, during my treatment years, I met so, some of the brightest, most gifted, most talented folks in recovery centers. And, and, and you're absolutely right. It takes, uh, it takes uh, some creativity to maintain an opiate uh, habit for any length of time. And I, I guess that's why they say in the rooms that you have to transfer the same energy and skill that you used in your addiction over into your recovery. And, if and that's what I love about residential treatment. Because mm -hmm. residential treatment, that's what I really do. Yeah. And what's hurtful is I look at the DC community now and this opioid epidemic that has continued that's right. And it's been uh, brought to national attention, right, because of our outcomes. That's right. Uh, and in the district, you know, we're probably number three in terms of um, the amount of overdose deaths related to yeah. um, opioids right. in the country. And that, right. there's no reason for that. Most of those people who have died as a direct result are African-American predominantly males, predominantly long histories of use. Yes. And there are a lot of things that are missing from our landscape. We don't have a detox in Southeast. Right. We don't have a detox east of the river. We don't have a long-term residential um, program anymore. Right. We closed the social model detox and things were slowly removed from the landscape. That's right. You know, in the city. And, you know, we have to do better about replacing those things. We have to do better about bringing dignity to people who don't have any right now. You That's have right. to give those people an opportunity because, but for the grace of God, that could be any one of us. That's right. Yeah. You know, and absolutely, you know, one thing I realized is back in the 80s when we were providing treatment services, uh, it was for the parents of the youth that we're now treating today. You know, I asked you to, to, to try to give me some comparisons of, of, of the drug, of the opiate crisis 
back in the 80s versus now. And the two things that come to mind, for me at least, one is you find more uh, persons snorting heroin uh, today because of the purity and the, the availability of it. But there's another substance that's kind of joined in with, joined in the party, and that's fentanyl, right? Absolutely. Uh, fentanyl and, so, and carfentanil. That's right. Can you tell me, tell tell the audience a little bit how that gets introduced into this whole um, uh, opioid crisis? Well, think of it this way: the opioid crisis was um, brought about a number of different ways. One, the drug manufacturers that produce pharmaceutical drugs, they were offering incentive incentives to doctors um, who would prescribe and eventually over prescribe. And as a direct result, created a crisis. You know, people started using Oxycontin mm -hmm. and Oxycodone That's because right. it was quality control. That's right. Now, as far as the drug industry, and what I'm really talking about is the illegal drug industry. Anybody who gets a package or who gets um, their supply, markets that supply, right? That is a business that they basically run. Sure. And the profit margin in that business is crazy. Right. So, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you had a lot of people making money. Then the drug factors, manufacturers, they're the ones who started um, um, putting the prescription drugs out there, which changed the landscape for the whole country. Absolutely. In the district... Um, anybody, well, no, not just in the district, in as a, as a business, if I can put a better product out, right, if I can take the same package of heroin that I've been making and then cut it with fentanyl or carfentanil and make it more potent, the chances are I'm going to sell more product and make more money. And in that regard, these guys that put these drugs on our streets, they as a rule, stay a step ahead of the industry mm -hmm. because their incentive is to make money. The incentive for um, interdiction, the incentive for um, stopping the, the traffic mm -hmm. isn't as great. That's right. We're catching up, but we're never ahead of the game. And we got to get ahead of the game if we ever really going to make a dent in this, uh, um, the opioid epidemic. Yeah, I think absolutely. Is, uh, yeah, what, do, um, what impact has COVID-19 had uh, uh, concerning the crisis and access to treatment? And uh, the, the backdrop right now is this pandemic. And, and how is that influencing the crisis? At this um, you know, Paul, quite honestly, you know, I do outreach and mm -hmm me and some of the staff at, at Prestige Community Resources. Prestige Community Resources has been a great place to uh, work. That's the yes. nonprofit I'm a president of. And um, the reality is it provides a platform to reach out to people to um, plant seeds of hope. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you asked that question, and I remember going to uh, um, Needle Park on Division Avenue. It's called Marvin Gaye Park. But the people that use it, they, when I grew up, it was Needle Park. Mm -hmm. And I went over there and somebody had uh, overdosed and um, the person that was injecting them with the drugs was right there. And 
you know, I had flashbacks about how um, how much of how people are impacted and how they're living, and what can I do to help this person? Yeah, you know, we administered the Narcan. You know, the reality is the landscape. You know, the open air drug market—they're still there. Yeah. They're just a little more undercover, mm-hmm. and the need for people to use drugs, when you look at some of the healthcare disparities, when you look at the lack of job opportunities for African-American men, you know, these guys are walking around, you know, not aware of everything that's at stake. And, you know, what's at stake is our future, our communities how we live and we all need to do our part to like restore equity and, you know, to create equity um, and and justice for everybody. Absolutely. You mentioned Narcan. What is Narcan and how does it work? Narcan is a drug that um, reverses overdose for Mm. opioids. It um, is a um, antagonist, which basically means it fills the, um, opioid receptor and doesn't allow op- the opioid that you use to have access to the receptor. So you can't get high. How, how um, is it administered? It's uh, mostly, it can be administered, um, it's mostly administered through a nasal spray. Okay. And um, that's the most common form used in the city. If you're in an emergency room, they may inject you with the Narcan, they may do it through an IV, but um, the reality is on the streets and in the communities, um, most people are using the nasal spray that Department of Health um, gives out. And there are a lot of different places you can get it. Prestige Community Resources, we're located at 1418 Good Hope Road. Mm-hmm. We give it out to the community all the time. So in order to administer, does the, the person ha- have to be licensed, have, a, have to have a medical degree? Uh, what are the requ- qualifications for someone to provide Narcan to someone who's in overdose in an overdose state? In the district, um, people who are um, certified to administer have to be certified by the Department of Health. Okay. Once you're certified by the Department of Health, it is absolutely okay to go out in the community, right, and distribute the Narcan or administer. But the other thing that you're doing is you're training addicts who are actively using to keep the Narcan close. Mm-hmm. You're training people who have users in their family, right, to keep the Narcan around. If you walk up on a loved one who's overdosed, you know, it, you have the means to save their life if that Narcan is nearby. Yes. Um, if it isn't, then you may be in a situation where that person could die or that you're completely overwhelmed and don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So it's important for us as people who are certified by the Department of Health to go out and train others and to, so, you know, we go into communities now, especially where the, um, there's basically an open air market and they keep Narcan where they're using it. Now, I was in Marvin Gaye Park and a guy walked me over to a milk crate mm-hmm. that they were keeping Narcan in for anybody who overdoses that day. Or, right. you know, right. they make it available to each other. 
Okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. You know, it okay. is absolutely important for, because we can't depend on the DC police and the ambulance. They're, they're, they're overwhelmed, mm -hmm. you know, and as good citizens, as good people, as good brothers, we need to help each other. Yeah. We need, you know, we need to do that. Mm -hmm. For time's sake, I want to spend the last couple of minutes just talking <laughs> about um, harm reduction. You know, we've talked about treatment, inpatient, outpatient. You know, what exactly is this model uh, or philosophy called harm reduction? What is that? Harm reduction is a, uh, an approach toward um, treating addiction um, where you recognize that the person is not ready to stop using. Mm -hmm. You know, so you employ strategies so they can use more safely. Yeah. A harm That's reduction strategy could be um, administering Narcan. Um, it, but harm reduction for a whole slew of behaviors behaviors right, right. like HIV AIDS one harm reduction strategy is to pass out condoms COVID harm reduction strategy is to pass out masks right you know some of the people living in the community don't have income they can't afford to go to the corner store mm -hmm. and buy masks because that two dollars that they're spending for that mask they may need for you know food they may right. need it for you know, to get to the doctor's office. They may need it for something else. So um, we need more resources in the community. That's right. You know, where most people are living below the poverty line. Yes. That's not okay. So, you know, I recently had an opportunity to uh, visit a consumer who was living on the street. I believe it was 17th and Cochrane Street, Northwest, 17th and P. If you've ever been down that street, there's a safe way where some of the homeless guys have tents that's right on the sidewalk. It's just like two, two or three blocks of folks living in tents. And I went to visit a, uh, uh, with a, one of our consumers. And of course, he introduced me to everyone on the road. And one of the chief requests they had was, we need masks. We don't have, we don't, we don't have money or access to the masks. And, and, you know, they're at great risk. They're out in the community. They're, they're, they're in close uh, settings with one another. You know, there might be 15 people living on one block. And they're all in ill health. There's, some of them are actively using substances, high risk. Uh, so you're absolutely right. I, I appreciate this harm reduction model. Now, some folks, I'm sure we have opponents. We have people on the other side that said we sh uh, certain people don't deserve uh, uh, these intervention types. Um, but the compassion and sensitivity that I believe we should offer our human kind is, is critical. And actually, sometimes it's the only gateway to invite someone into sobriety. The compassionate no. greeter is the door that I'll probably walk into once I make a decision to stop using. And, and getting to the point where you can actually make that decision. That's right. You know, Paul, I remember um, hustling. And mm -hmm. I used to call myself a soldier. Yeah. A true soldier. Look at that. I stand out on that corner, sell drugs 24 mm. 7. That's you right. You know, um, and the drugs be hidden and holding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it one day and I said, you know, well, what is a soldier? A soldier is a person who takes an oath, usually to right. their country, mm -hmm. 
you know, and they're willing to lit, put their life on the line for their belief, their belief in country. Mm -hmm. So I use that definition and applied it to myself. Am I saying that I'm willing to lay my life down for drugs? And for me, it was a wake up call. It was yeah. a spiritual awakening where I had to make a decision yeah. about what I stand for That's and right. who I wanted to be. Yeah. And my mother didn't raise a drug addict. No. You know, that's something I chose to do. And I had to make a decision. I don't want to do that no more. Right. And thank God that there were resources in the community that helped me. And, you know, for the life of, you know, I used to ask, well, why me? Why did I get help and other people didn't? And it's not for me to question God's will. No, it's not. But it's for me to do God's work. That's right. So if I've been restored as a direct result of okay. grace, yes, then it's important for me to pass the blessing on to someone else. Because if I don't, God can take that blessing away. You, so, you talked about making a decision. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they, they tell me uh, in recovery that treatment doesn't begin until you make a decision to stop. And you were able to make a decision. And you and us, the community at large, were beneficiaries of, of you making that decision. I remember uh, the, on occasion, the state in, at C. Sosa, where we both worked, we both, <laughs> you and I worked at the Reentry and Sanctions Center. I went up on the unit and I, I, I was greeted by this young man. He must have been 22 years old. Matter of fact, I, I didn't greet him. He walked by me on the unit. And I was so... Um, moved by his presentation because he had tattoos from the from all over his body matter of fact there was no space on his face that wasn't marked and it went all the way down his neck or i mean his entire body and i, I had to stop him i actually stopped and said come here come here young man. how you doing man and um i had to acknowledge the fact that he made a commitment to live in the streets he made a decision. He said, I'm going, I'm going hard. And, and that's what he verbalized to me that, you know what? I see this recovery stuff you're trying to offer me and a, a, a different way of life. But he looked me in my eyes and said, I'm committed to the life. Now, unfortunately, uh, at some point later on, his commitment cost him his life. So he really was committed. Uh, but I, I respect the decision that has to be made for any individual. Um, uh, to change their way of life uh, and to improve the quality of their life. Hey, listen, I would be remiss if we didn't close by me just letting people know that you're also, I know you were executive in the music industry with CBS Records, and uh, but many people may not know. Well, let me say this. Many people do know that you are also a musician. And uh, in fact, uh, you put together a very uh, successful band that we're just waiting to see perform on the regular once we get past this pandemic. Um, so what's the name? Uh, you are a musician, is that correct? Yes, I am a musician. Mm -hmm. um, I play drums and congas. Yeah. And uh, the name of our band is Cruise Control. Cruise Control. And most, a lot of people in the band are in recovery. Yes. And, um, you know, this whole COVID pandemic for me brought had to help me make some decisions about the rest of my life. Okay. You know, Paul, we've known each other a long time. And 
I am, I can't tell you how happy I am to be able to do a podcast with you um, for the right reasons. Like, you know, we want to help the community. We want to carry a message of hope. Um, But the other part of it is, you know, I need to celebrate my blessing in all areas of my life. So, you know, my work um, speaks for itself. I put a lot of energy into helping people and helping the system and doing what I can, or at least doing my part, right? But, you know, we also need to celebrate um, success in the things that we have passion for with our families, mm-hmm. with our hobbies like music. Right. And you'd be surprised at how um, those things will bleed into other areas of your life. I, you know, let's take fishing for an example. I love to fish. Hmm. And I used to take my consumers fishing. Okay. And I remember walking up North Capitol Street one day and this kid, he wasn't a kid, he was probably in his 30s. But, you know, to me, he's a kid. <laughs> he walked up to me and said, you remember me? Mm-hmm. And in all honesty, um, I didn't. And I said to him, I, second Genesis? And he said, yeah, you took me fishing. Mm. And nobody had ever taken me fishing before besides my grandfather. And he died when I was a child. Mm. I was eight years old or so. Right, right. You know, but you took me fishing. And that meant the world to me. And I will never forget you for that. When I, when I run into guys like that, it's always about love. Yes. Because we plant seeds. That's right. We try to help. Music ain't no different. I love music. Yeah, I've seen you perform. I've seen the band perform. And I see your passion and the synergy with the band members. And I just even noticed the music selections that you uh, that you choose that are uplifting, positive, empowering. Uh, I'm v- I paid attention to that, um, and I'm ex- I-, I can't wait till uh, this pandemic is behind us and we get a chance to see you and the group perform live several days a week. Sometimes on oh, the we're weekend. gonna kill it. We're gonna <laughs> kill it, right. my brother. <laughs> the, the other thing I, I the other thing I recognize is I've actually been to one of your rehearsals. And, you know, I've, I've done music for, for a while myself, and I noticed that no one at rehearsal is consuming alcohol or using drugs. No, I, we ain't doing that. I, I haven't seen that too much. I've been a lot of band practices, and um, I, I don't, you don't see that commonly. So your commitment uh, and what you said, you model a behavior, you live a lifestyle that supports messages that you, you give others about living clean and sober. Listen, Will, give us some give us some hope. What what can we look forward to uh, moving forward in 2021 from as it relates to behavioral health services? Can we be optimistic this year that uh, something will change? And what 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 are your thoughts? Well, in terms of behavioral health services, when I say, you know, I want to do my part, mm-hmm. um, as president of Prestige Community Resources, we do a food drive weekly. Right. We feed about 300 people every week. Man. Um, we do a phone drive. We give phones to the homeless, you know, sure. that are connected to our um, programs to mm-hmm. ensure that they have access to health care, yes. that they can talk to a therapist, community support worker, use the phone to call the hospital if you're sick, whatever. You know, they have to have that. We have a few grants that we're currently doing. We have a housing program. 
um, that provides transitional housing and stabilization for people coming out of the hospital or out of, um, say, uh, detox or out of PIW. One of our grants is a peer certification grant where we help people become certified. And that's a national certification where you can have reciprocity in both Maryland and Virginia. Currently, that doesn't exist. But it allows people to get in the workforce and hopefully have a pathway to a middle class. You know, my first job clean, I was making 16000 a year. Right. And, you know, when I look back on that, that, that was some of the happiest days of my life because I was learning, I was growing, and I was transitioning into the person I eventually became. We have a... Um, a harm reduction grant where we actually go out and do harm reduction and we train our staff in how to engage and how to develop cultural responsiveness. You know, people talk about cultural competence. People talk about knowing how to engage, but you have to be responsive because if you're not responsive, you're going to lose your clients anyway. I don't care how good you are. That's right. You, you have to respond to what their needs are because those needs are what drives their behavior. And if you don't respond to them, their behavior ain't gonna change. It's not. No. One of the things I've discovered, you know, in this journey is that anybody can be a counselor, but not any, not everyone can affect change. And I want to be an agent of change. And of course, we all, we all want the certifications and the licensures and all that. But when it's all said and done, you have to ask yourself, well, what's your legacy? Legacy ain't about how much money you made. It ain't about who you uh, uh, um, who you know. It ain't about um, how many houses you bought or how many women or men that you've gotten in your life. It's about the messages that you pass on to your community. And the it's about you. living in God's favor and sticking close to your beliefs and passing those messages on to the people that you love, your family, children, friends, community. It's about being what you say you are, right? Not living, um, talking clean and living dirty. Right, Though that do we, and we ain't doing that. That's no. right. You know, I, like you, have had the privilege and, and access to any sector of the community and any side of the city. Uh, and the best payday for me is when a consumer comes up to you, sometimes you do recognize them, sometimes you don't, and thanks you for the impact you had in their recovery. That, that's a good day. When I have those moments and those contacts, I might just be walking down the street, hey, hey, Wells, what's going on? Hey, Wells, man, I just want to thank you, man. And I like you, sometimes I'm kind of foggy on, on my recall. Like, you know, we used to work on so-and-so and so that's we're right. committed beyond uh, the professional identity that we have to assume. You know, we have to right. uh, do the training and stuff. But I got to do the work. Mm -hmm. Got to do the work. But it, it's way beyond that, Mr. Barnett. This this has been great. I know when folks hear this podcast, they they're, they're uh, immediately going to want to reach out to you. What is the best platform to make contact directly with you? Well, first of all, I want to. I, you know, I left something out that I wanted to say. And, you know, one of the other things that Prestige does is we have a media grant mm -hmm. and our, which makes this podcast possible. That's right. But we're doing a documentary. We're doing public service announcements. We're using social media to push out 
this information to the community so we can touch more lives. Um, you know, as the uh, um, president of Pro Prestige, I, you know, you can always reach me at um, our DC office at 202 796 5000. Okay. Website is prestigecommunityresources.org. That's right. You'll find information for our housing program, for our peer certification program, and from some of the other services that we provide right. there. Okay. Um, Prestige Community Resources as a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. we, we are always looking for volunteers. We're always looking for donations to help make the work that we do. Um, we want to make it go further. We want to reach more people. We want to grow. You know, um, I truly believe God didn't bring me this far to let me go. So in my faith, I'm going to have to do what's necessary, right? to move forward That's and right. moving this organization forward was been beautiful is working with people like you and the rest mm -hmm. of the staff there mm -hmm. who, you know, we share mutuality of purpose. Right. We all have a passion for helping the community. Some of us have a little more experiences than others, but we deserve better. Our communities deserve better. You know, That's our children deserve better. And if anything, this opioid epidemic and the COVID pandemic has taught me that life is so precious. You cannot allow opportunities to get by because when you let them get by, you become stagnated. And I ain't trying to be stagnated. Um, there's there's too much I work still, it's still. There's too much work still yet to be done. Yeah. We have to maintain our stamina and our commitment and our focus uh, to the urgency uh, that's always at hand. Mr. Barnett, this has been great. You're, you're representing Prestige Community Resources in, in rare fashion. Uh, I'm sure there, uh, we are glad that you are present of, of the uh, Community Resources Prestige. You're doing great work. Um, and I salute you. Uh, for your legacy uh, and for your efforts uh, in the community. Listen, Cruise Control Band, I want everyone to kind of uh, <laughs> be on the lookout for, for, for the schedule. They'll, they'll be, I'm sure, released very, very soon. Uh, looking, hopefully, in the summer, you'll be able to perform again live at the uh, various venues. Hey, family, this has been great. Mr. Barnett, I'm, I'll, I'll, we appreciate having you. Thank you for your time and, and for our audience. If you want more information about who we are and what we do here at Prestige, please visit our website at prestigecommunityresources.org. Thank you so much for joining this episode with us today. It has been a pleasure. Until next time, stay safe, stay well. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.